Good morning. Good afternoon to those in Europe. A couple of people. You know, I thought uh, I'll come here and acknowledge our state. Um, an election that still hasn't been decided, but just before I came down here, you know, there was a message on my phone by the New York Times that called the election for Joe Biden. And it's strange. Uh, it's strange. I, I, my prevailing feeling is, or my predominant feeling is that now half the country, almost half the country, has to live with what they think is unacceptable. And it would have been uh, the same if the election had been decided the other way around. This is a difficult situation for the country. So whatever our own preferences are, uh, there's almost, you know, exactly one other person, not quite true, you know, we know that, popular vote and so forth, who feels uh, that this isn't good. I, I meet with three groups of what I call ecological change agents, for the lack of a better word, people who, most of them, are involved in preparing for the next climate summit in Glasgow that's scheduled for November 2021. And it's people from all over the world, mostly English-speaking countries, you know. So I meet with people from mostly England, actually, because the summit will be in, or the United Kingdom, uh, because the summit will be in Glasgow. But also people in North America and South Africa and Chile, Australia. And uh, something that they've been bringing up with me leading up to this election and now also in the last group while the count was going on is essentially if i boil it down if i boil the kinds of questions that they're asking down into one formulation it's something like how can i have compassion with the people i disagree with now for them it has a very, there's a very pressing feeling underlying the question because they see climate disruption as a, as a kind of scientific fact. I'm saying it in this vague way, maybe Maybe it's justified later when I talk about some other things. And it's a scientific fact for them. And of course, we want to 
I mean, most of us in this Zoom room right now and in this Zendo are probably agreeing and saying, yeah, the climate change is a scientific fact. And um, they are working in the framework that the Paris Climate Accord has established that basically says that this, these, 20, these 2020 years, this decade, is um, the critical decade. It's the decade in which we must reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% and then get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And if this was achieved, which at this point it's not very likely because greenhouse gas emissions are still going up. If this was achieved to get to net zero by 2050, then we have a 50% chance, a 50% chance only to avoid irreparable damage to the ecosphere and avoid not only, you know, the dying of countless other beings, but also avoid a very miserable human future. So this is the worldview within which they operate. Right? And uh, as one woman told me recently, uh, I just don't know what to do with the fact that 70 million Americans just voted against any kind of meaningful climate action. She said, I don't know what to do with that. It's like, it makes my work almost pointless because I don't see how we can convince enough people of this perspective so that we can take collective action. <clears throat> And um, it's very sincere, you know. What I really appreciate about these groups that we're conducting, I just basically go around and everyone, every person who, in my view, is doing potentially the most important work of the 21st century, right, is invited to speak not so much about what they're doing, but how they're going about doing what they're doing, which is what I emphasize. You know, how are you doing what you're doing? You know, what is your approach? How do you hold your mind in the midst of this work? And um, so it's very sincere. People are, at least I'm surprised, positively surprised, very open about their emotional state or how they how desperate they feel or depressed or dejected or hopeless <clears throat> now something i found myself doing in these situations is that i pointed out that 
my observation is that most people, and I include myself, I include myself in different gradations. Like I, when I include my former self, there's more of that. And now there's less of that. So what that is, is my observation is that most people try to establish commonality with others on a conceptual level. When I say conceptual, I mean, you know, opinions, views, values, worldviews. So in other words, it's like, I can feel connected if I agree with you. So this is very, this is very simplistic what I'm saying, but, you know, isn't that true? It's like, when I have a disagreement, I feel separation. So with this question, this type of question that I've been getting a lot, how can I have compassion with people that I disagree with? It's actually, the question is, if we formulate it slightly differently, it's like, how can I be be connected with people I disagree with. And what I'm going to is, um, is a concept that I've been talking about a lot recently, um, resonance. Because in my view, resonance is at the root of compassion. Compassion means feeling with. Literally, feeling with. At the root of feeling with others is resonance. And the, and the image that I have is resonance is when you ring a bell. Say, you ring a bell, and then there's another bell that you don't ring, but that bell that you don't ring resonates with a spectrum of the frequencies that are in the bell that you do strike. Our bodies are that way. I, I'm, I'm speaking about our bodies as resonant bodies. Because whatever happens in our surroundings resonates here. Now you can't help it. It's like, if you wanted to say, like, I need to learn to be more resonant. No, you're already resonant. It's not something that needs a lot of work. What, what needs work is to give up the defense against resonance. You see, like, resonance isn't always comfortable. So when it is uncomfortable or painful, straight out painful, I don't want to feel it. So I'm finding ways to defend against it. So I see the work of uh, practice to start to notice that defense against resonance on various levels and to develop the courage 
to be so open-hearted that resonance can actually occur. I mean, the language is misleading. Resonance already occurs, but it isn't fully admitted into awareness. You know, uh, during this pandemic, I have been observing since day one when lockdown started to occur and suggestions were made about wearing masks. I uh, have observed myself and others in how this mask wearing is adopted. And um, now we've come to a point where in the United States where mask wearing is a political battle. Like you're making a statement when you don't wear a mask, a political statement of sorts. I mean, not everyone does, but you know, it can be, can be that and it can be interpreted that way. And also when you do wear a mask, you're making a kind of political statement now, which is mind blowing. How did it come to that? Why is mask wearing being instrumentalized by political parties? And you know, what I came to is something, you know, I don't know if it's true, but what I concluded is people who are developing theories about how mask wearing is ineffective or ridiculous or, uh, you know, shouldn't be done, useless, that it harms you even, you know, because you're supposedly breathing your own germs. That's an interesting theory. Um, I have concluded that people who have developed these theories just don't like wearing masks or have adopted the view that they don't like wearing masks. I think that's at the root of it. I just don't like doing it. And then I investigated myself and I'm finding I don't like it either. I mean, not really. Right? I don't mind in a strong way, but I don't like it. In fact, when um, the pandemic started, I was still living in, in, at Crystal Mountain Zen Center, you know, out in the mountains, far away from things. We had somebody who was going shopping once a week. I never left the premises for, I don't know, three months. I never went anywhere. And I didn't wear a mask. And when I moved to the city, I had to wear a mask. I had to, you know, going shopping and stuff. And I didn't like it. I had to get over a threshold. It's like I, putting on the mask is, you know. Now, you can't, you cannot like it for various reasons. Sorry to be so, you know, detailed, but it matters to my argument, I think. It's like you don't like it because your glasses fog up if you wear glasses. Right? That's why you don't like it. Or you don't like it because it makes it harder to breathe. Or you don't like it because it interferes with your sense of vanity. I think that's a big problem for 
the president. Oh, for the former president. No, he's still the president until January. I think that's a big problem. It interferes with his image. It's a big problem for him. I really, I say this, and this is my point, I say this with compassion now. It's a problem for me too. You know, I like myself better without a mask. But it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't get to the level where I base my actions on it. So, it's interesting whether you agree or don't agree with theories about mask wearing, actually at the, at the level of the resonant body, we can actually resonate with the discomfort in mask wearing. It's just like we make different decisions based on that discomfort. Some people choose to tolerate it and some people don't. Now, recently, in the context of this climate uh, topic, right, I, I have read stories about ranchers in Texas. And Texas is, um, rural Texas is not adopting the idea of man-made climate change very much. Many people there are opposed to it strongly. I read that uh, 18% of the U.S. population are real climate change deniers. I mean, they deny that climate change exists or they deny that it, it has something to do with human activity. That's, you know, approximately 50 million people, according to this statistic. That 50 million people. And 70 million voted against taking any kind of action. But it's interesting in these stories that I read about Texas ranchers is the ranchers in Texas are acutely aware that the climate is changing. Because they're going through these super droughts and their cattle have nothing to graze on. And cattle are dying you know, from heat strokes. So these ranchers are actually aware that the climate is changing. Experientially, in their immediate perception, they agree. But the story that they're telling about it is different from the environmentalists that I'm meeting with. So what I'm suggesting to the ecological change agents is to see if they can <clears throat> locate themselves more in the resonant body and less in their conceptual mind. You know, 
you can still disagree with someone on this conceptual level, and I think it's necessary to to work through these disagreements. And at the same time, we can allow ourselves to be resonant with, say, not liking wearing a mask or resonant with the fear that the rancher in Texas, in Texas experiences vis-a-vis how his or her livelihood is slipping away. You know, another debate that is so intense in the United States about abortion, this is, I, 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 when I feel into it with a resonant body rather than thinking about it, right? When I feel into the topic of abortion, all I find is, you know, uh, a complexity on the sensation level. It's, it's very obvious that killing unborn life is a dramatic event, you know, that for any sensitive person creates difficult feelings. And it's also clear that giving birth to a disabled child or giving birth when you don't have resources to take care of a child or giving birth when you've been raped very difficult feelings right <clears throat> so i don't understand why it has to be so black and white you know on on the feeling level right on on the on this resonant body level why why can't we acknowledge the complexity i mean we can i think we're practitioners so but as a society, it's hard to understand how these issues turn out to be so black and white in people's minds. Because, you know, if I had to describe my position on abortion, I would say I'm pro-life and I respect people's cho- women's choices uh, around their body. I don't see that as a contradiction. to resonate with this unborn being and their aliveness and to resonate with uh, the mother and the surroundings of that baby in the same way or in a similar way. Both cause resonance. Feeling with. Hmm. So... I want to bring this to Zazen. We sit Zazen as our primary practice. And I just talked to a group of high school students and I introduced 
zazen practice to them. And they are, it's very new to them. And so what I emphasize in a situation like this is when you sit down, are you noticing how active your mind is? Yeah, and they say, yeah, I, I, can, I can notice it. It's like my mind is constantly producing thoughts. When you start to observe your mind more carefully, it's like whatever resonance happens, you know, you see something, you hear something, a memory comes up, this happens. Whatever happens, the mind can latch onto it and produce a thought. And then it can latch onto that thought and produce another thought about that thought. And then it can latch onto that thought and it can produce a third generation thought and a fourth generation thought and a fifth generation thought. And you can't even be there to watch it all easily. It's just kind of like cascading. And the cascading discursive thinking leads away from the immediacy of that first initial sensation that triggered this cascade. Uchiyama Roshi um, uses a phrase in describing the, uh, the activity of Zazen, and he says, opening the hand of thought. And I like it very much, you know. The closed hand of thought. Because thought is grasping this initial sensation. And it's holding it in a conceptual way, we can say. And then like, another hand comes and grabs that thought. And then another hand comes and grabs that thought. Now, a belief, you know, a belief is something where you really hold on. You really hold on to that thought. It's firmly grasped. You don't let it go anymore. And, and Uchiyama Roshi says the, the activity of Zazen is opening the hand of thought. What, it, what that means is to establish yourself primarily on the sensation level of experience. I recently concocted this example. You know, you're hiking on a trail, let's say, you know, in the mountains. And uh, you see this, you see this dog. You know, I'm imagining a hiking trail in Boulder. You know, you see this dog off the leash, you know, and the dog is coming toward you. And your thought is, why, why aren't people keeping their dogs on the leash?
So, so you know, your immediate sensation, the, the sensation level of your experience is this furry being uh, over there, you know, that's like running around. But thought grasps it as a dog, and thought not only grasps it as a dog, but it adds a certain level of judgment uh, of like, somebody's breaking the rules here. And I'm giving this uh, this weird, you know, example because it's it's telling for me that I'm hoping the example can give you a feeling for it. Isn't this most of how we live our daily lives? Like that we're immediately at this level of why aren't people keeping their dogs on a leash? Kind of thinking. I can't believe people are supporting Donald Trump. Well, I, I talked to somebody who supported Donald Trump yesterday for an hour, and the person said, uh, you know, Michelle Obama, uh, when, you know, there were riots in New York City after um, George Floyd's uh, police murder, you know, Michelle Obama said, this is how we protest. The Democrats are supporting looting. It's amazing that our minds are functioning mostly on this level. I find that it is a really subtle practice to notice your mind functioning as a hand that's grasping and to open that hand. It's difficult. I think in my observation is like, yes, you know, all of you here are already doing this practice and yet it remains difficult. Why is that? I think it remains difficult because when you actually go to the sensation level of your experience, which is also which I'm also referring today as this resonant body, you are truly encountering, truly, truly encountering sensations that are very difficult to bear. It's like we want to stay away from those sensations, distract ourselves from them, avoid them at all costs. And Zazen, when understood in this opening the hand of thought way, Zazen actually pushes you into this dimension. It requires discipline, great intention to sit there with your body and mind just as they are without doing anything about it. Now, when you do this kind of practice, a question can come up like, 
why are we doing it anyway? I mean, what am I getting from that? I have to go on with my life. I do have to have thoughts. I have to make decisions. What am I going to do with this practice? Is it really helping me? And you can become really doubtful because the practice is difficult and it doesn't in an obvious way lead to some benefit. So Gil spoke you know, uh, a while ago about faith. There is, um, there is some faith required here that this practice is actually having a benefit. And it takes time. And the benefit is slowly, I think, slowly, slowly accumulates as a willingness to be present with discomfort. And the willingness to be present with discomfort is the other side of how we could speak about a lessening of reactivity. I don't have to immediately do something about this sensation. I don't have to immediately avoid it. You know, when I talk to these climate uh, people, Sometimes I say the climate people, the ecological change agents. They're very concerned that, that they don't have enough time to go through these processes of meeting the situation as it is with an open heart and trying to enter into, you know, mostly it's imagined, but dialogue with people who are not helping the cause, who have closed their hand of thought in such a way that they are denying what they perceive as a reality. And uh, I resonate with that. It's like, it is, it seems very impractical. that some significant change would happen in the state that we're in, in this polarization, as everyone calls it now, that something could really move there, that you could make a difference by making a practice that we call opening the hand of thought or just committing to an open-heartedness, a resonant body. And yet, I don't see an alternative. Maybe we don't have time, but we, I think, need to take the time. Because, as I said in the beginning of the talk, uh, we now have to live with, you know, our fellow citizens who strongly disagree. They're not going away. There was this fantasy, I think, before the election, supported by the polls, the, the, the Democratic, the Demo, capital D Democrat um, fantasy that this will be a blowout victory and we're going to 
take the Senate and we'll have a majority and we're just going to do what we want. And the problem will be over. And it turns out that was a big fantasy. It's not happening that way. The people we disagree with don't go away. And paradoxically, when the fighting happens, like on the conceptual level, when this conceptual fight happens, now, if you've seen the movie, The Social Dilemma, um, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, please watch it, because it's a great education for the times that we live in. The Social Dilemma. Um, this... These fights, these disagreements, these conceptual disagreements are now exploited by algorithms so that people can sell their advertisement. Because the fighting grabs our attention and that's the intention that our attention will be glued to this kind of problem and then people because it's predictable that it grabs our attention, people can sell advertisements. This is how Facebook and Google and Twitter make their money. It's amazing. We think it's personal, but it's become completely impersonal. It's just algorithms feeding our conceptual minds. So I'm suggesting something I think, concept, on the conceptual level, very simplistic and in our actual practice, very difficult. That's my own experience. To open the hand of thought, to now and then, and maybe on an ongoing basis, establish yourself on this, on the sensation level of your experience and see how much connection is possible on that level through resonance. As a last thought and example on this, some of you know how involved I am with the topic of climate disruption. You know, it's, it's dear to me. I, I resonate with it and I really want to do something. And I have, um, you know, made a commitment and many of you have contributed to the solar array we built together in Creston that reduced carbon emissions by 75% there. But when I open my heart to the people who deny this climate crisis, what I find is everyone is anxious. Those of us who have accepted climate disruption as a fact, we are anxious about what will happen to us in the future. We are afraid of the pain and the suffering that will come with a planet that is 
getting hotter and hotter. And those who deny this climate crisis are afraid of the changes that they have to go through to adapt to this new reality. They're afraid to lose their livelihoods. They're afraid that they can't afford it. And so the convenient out from this anxiety is to deny it. It's, it seems very obvious to me. It's like, if I can make a conceptual decision that it doesn't exist, I don't have to be afraid, and I can hold it at bay. So we are very connected. We're con very connected, in the end, from a Buddhist point of view, that we're all kind of... Um, we're resonating with change in different ways, but this impermanence, this change, is, um, is causing anxiety. You know, it may not be possible in time, again, from the point of view of these ecological change agents, to come to a consensus that allows us to act collectively. It may not work. I don't know. It may not work. We should try, but it may not work. But the price that I see uh, my participants in these groups pay on their experience you know, experientially, the price that I see there, them pay is that they lose their open-heartedness. <laughs> so I think, or to summarize, I think this talk that I'm giving today is about whether I, you, we want to make a commitment to open-heartedness in the face of difficulty. Open-heartedness would mean that I'm willing to tolerate and be kind to and accept sensations in my body and mind that, are, that I'd rather not feel. It's, in the end, it's that simple. To take that as a starting point and discover freedom around that, you know. I'm able to feel these feelings and then I can decide to align my actions with whatever my most cherished intentions are. Thank you for your attention. I hope these Reflections are somewhat useful in, uh, in this um, moment that we're in. Thank you.